Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better, and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Ro Gupta, the CEO of Carmera. At Carmera, they're developing systems and sensors that enable them to capture and process real-time map data. In doing so, they're laying the fundamental groundwork for the future of autonomous transportation and mobility. Let's jump right in. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to have you here on Build the Future to talk about Carmera. Thanks for inviting me. Tell me about the future you're building at Carmera. What's the vision? The vision is to be the road intelligence platform of the future, really. And so road intelligence is sort of the broad term we use. Um, We specialize in mapping and in particular, something called high definition maps that are used for sort of next gen autonomy and mobility use cases. So, you know, we've been focused primarily on building first for autonomous driving, which we can get into in a bit and why maps are used. But more uh, broadly, a part of maps, both high definition maps, as well as the maps that you would have on your phone today, uh, the part that's really hard and unsolved is how to maintain maps as things change in the real world. It's, you know, either very costly or very slow or very, you know, or, or just not accurate. And we're going through a revolution of, you know, sensors everywhere and processing technologies and techniques that just weren't uh, available seven, eight, 10 years ago, but were at five or six years ago when we started Carmera. And so that's what's really exciting is like really being able to make a dent in a, in a problem that's been a problem for decades now in mapping. And finally, we're seeing, you know, a way to actually skin that cat, uh, pardon the expression, <laughs> in a way that can actually be at scale. So what is the process for collecting this information? And then why is it important that we update and keep our maps current? Obviously, it's something that companies, Google and Apple and companies like here and TomTom, who are suppliers to the automotive industry, they certainly have had to do some updates on maps, but not really to any level of high bar of frequency. And that's because historically all these use cases have been, you know, really for humans to use maps to research directions to a place or, um, you know, navigate um, or um, see what neighborhoods are interesting in a new city or whatever. Um, And so if things are a little bit old or outdated, the sign a turn restriction at an intersection is wrong or isn't there anymore or whatever, not the end of the world. You know, you're still a human in control, whether you're driving or you're walking or you're just not, you're just at your computer looking at the map and researching something. So it wasn't a big deal. Right. But now it's these maps are needing to be 
sort of upgraded for machines, not just humans, right? And so in our case, you know, we're building for, you know, arguably the hardest uh, to satisfy use case, which are machines that are driving around on public roads and you don't want to crash into things, right? And so there you have a much, much higher bar. And so basically I'm obviously referring to, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. And that's when I think that that really was one of the catalysts for the mapping road intelligence industry to start to really step things up in the past few years, because that's a clear use case where, you know, especially for these high levels of autonomy, where you're talking about a very unsupervised experience where the humans either totally out of the loop or mostly out of the loop in terms of being expected to, to you know, operate the vehicle. You know, there's a very low tolerance for, certainly for any risk in terms of actual safety, but even, even if you feel really good about your safety case for your robot, for your driverless car, there's also still a very low tolerance for a lot of like interruptions or disengagements because you know the the sensors thought it was seeing something but the map disagrees or vice versa whatever right so so basically to get to a really fresh accurate map these update cycles have had to really be improved whereas you know in the past it was fine to like kind of try to update your map once a year at best you know and the and again the reason that these maps are used by these autonomous vehicles are they're a really important redundancy and uh, and source of foresight for the vehicle. So, you know, the, the vehicle in real time is sensing things and making decisions, but it's really very, very helpful to have a, what's called a prior, it's just a technical term for like what, what your last knowledge of the world was in that intersection or that stretch of road. And that's what the map tells you. And if that prior is really high quality, meaning it's very recent and it, and it does reflect that new turn restriction sign, it's even better. And you start to, make your decisions um, with a lot more certainty and reliability, right? And, and then the other, the, other, the other nice thing about a map is some people call it the fourth sensor. So, you know, these driverless cars, often they're using like cameras and radars and LIDARs to see what they can see line of sight. But a map can also tell you what's around the corner or six blocks away that your sensors can't yet see, you know? Anyway, all, all this to say is that requirement, that's a big, big difference from just a human driving around on Waze or something, um, right? And so that's why... Uh, you know, we saw this sort of coming, this need coming about, you know, uh, six, seven years ago when the concept of Carmera was brewing and that that was really going to up the ante on, on you know, next generation mapping, particularly on the on the change management side. And that, so that's what we focused on using sort of a crowdsourced camera based approach, because there are now so many sensors on streets today. And so you can do it in a way that's high frequency, but still actually very cost effective. And then kind of how this fits into the broader picture of like autonomous transportation is, you know, we can't have cars driving down the streets, thinking things that are no longer there are there or things that, you know, they didn't think were there are there and causing all sorts of problems with, with like reliability of the things, right? There's a lot of analogies to humans, because even though it's okay if, if the map is wrong for and just about any human uh, use case, it's still a lot better even for for human use cases if the map is really good. And it's, you know, what we're seeing is, not to get too heady here, but, you know, if you think about concepts like singularity, right? Um, it's, there's a kind of like analogy a little bit with uh, maps because where we see things going is maps are basically, like the next generation of maps are helping machines act more like humans. So that's what I just described to you, right? Like the driverless car make, better decisions like a really good, attentive, skilled driver would, right? But we also see that these next generation maps can allow humans to 
benefit from data that normally machines only get access to. So for example, like the Amazon delivery driver from a next generation map, he or she should be able to get much better hints that, hey, uh, you know, after that McDonald's is where you should pull over or, you know, that's a good place to, to stop. Or, you know, you should actually like, you, you know, you can use more sort of natural language type directions um, that typically humans have had just to sort of fend for themselves. So I guess what I'm saying is there's, we kind of see a convergence where just better maps are good for both machines emulating humans and humans kind of emulating machines, right? So it's sort of like it, it, it's both. And I think the other thing we're also projecting is that, you know, right now, a lot of the focus on these maps are for redundancy, you know, for, for making the decisions on a couple key things. Um, so basically, these, these driver's cars have to answer these three core questions all the time. One is, where am I? Uh, we call that localization. Two is, what's around me? I call that perception. And three is what do I do next? Uh, that's called planning. So maps are used for all three of those uh, pretty extensively for these high levels of autonomy these days. Uh, that's because you know for all three of those, you can refer back to the map to sort of assess whether you think you're making that decision correctly. But we also think that in time that the onboard systems are getting better and better so that it's quite possible, for example, for perception, let's say, that the onboard real-time perception just from the sensors and the software in the vehicle are just going to get so, so good that the confidence levels will be perfectly good enough on vehicle that you don't even need the map so much to verify that anymore. However, if you think about it, right, you will always want to know more about foresight if you can. You're always going to want to know what the map can tell you about what's around the corner or six blocks away because it just then makes it even a better experience to plan around. Well, I want to talk on the the space more broadly. I'm curious, kind of, what your take is on mapping technology in the context of like the last mile delivery. How do you how do you think about that component of this autonomous technology space developing? Yeah, we're we're definitely bullish there, both middle mile and last mile. On both of those, actually, both for humans and machines, um, because I already described to you on the human side. You know, for example, actually, a number of our employees uh, came from. Uh, Amazon, you know, Amazon Logistics. And so we're quite familiar with that world of delivery. We also, part of how we crowdsource the data to keep maps up to date really cheaply is we work with uh, delivery fleets. Um, so these are, you know, non, just human driven delivery vans doing their pickups and drop-offs. You know, they, they might be delivering cleaning supplies or packages or maintenance. They might be maintenance vehicles going and doing their rounds. And, you know, we attach sensors to them and, um, you know, they're able to get a, um, a service that allows them to keep their the driver safe, but with this you know visual monitoring and, and safety analytics service, and in turn we're able to crowdsource data really cheaply. But my point is that's also means we know a lot about that delivery space, and even for humans, as I was saying earlier, better, much better maps you know that are for machines can also almost give these human drivers superhuman capabilities, right? Like make it a lot easier for them to navigate, especially in the chaos of a city, if you're giving them more clues on what features to, you know, to navigate around, or if you're giving them more up-to-date information, for example, on a construction zone, right? That may not be perfectly accurate in ways or something. So, so, so that we believe in and we build for in our maps, but also um, we also are believers in the autonomous delivery space. That's like, you know, especially with COVID, but even before COVID, you could see that that was, you know, very real and, both on the middle mile and last mile, there's some um, you know really interesting companies and, and traction we're seeing there. Can you give me a bit of an overview or paint the picture for for the listener for like what the autonomous space looks like right now or the autonomous transportation space looks like right now? 
it's been very interesting because like total classic hype cycle, you know, in the mid part of the last decade, you know, every, I, I always gauge the hype cycles by CES. You can almost like measure it by the, the buzz of CES every year. And I would say by about 20 CES, was it 2019? I think, I think I remember at CS 2019 telling people, you know what, people are still bullish, but you can see there's a, a sobering up going on a little bit. People are talking more realistically. Then last year, that definitely was happening, 2020. And then of course, COVID happened. And so I think that's good because frontier technologies, new technologies, they typically uh, progress in these S curves. What that means is there's always this trough, you know, there's this hype, initial hype, and then there's this kind of flattening a little bit, but then, you know, in time, it actually does pick back up again when you get to mature deployment phase. But if you're building for a, a frontier type space and you know it's in the early days of the hype cycle, you actually want to know, it's, it's actually almost better to get to the trough sooner because it allows you to plan a lot easier on, uh, you know, for example, how much money to raise or how, how to think about, you know, doing a proof of concept uh, versus, you uh, gearing up for large scale production, like you, you, it's like actually really useful to kind of start to get that pattern recognition. I'm not saying we're totally out of that trough, but I definitely think there's some, I think actually COVID accelerated some things in, in that trough because one is it, it, it kind of shook up a lot of the industry. There'd already been a lot of like, you know, um, winnowing out a little bit of companies uh, or consolidation or just, you know, slowdowns in timelines, realistic timelines, et cetera, before COVID. And then COVID just accelerated that. But then also on the flip side, obviously with people, you know, starting to rethink mobility and getting into a vehicle with someone else and also getting things delivered to them, that also really changed uh, just even lay people's, uh, you know, understanding of the benefits of things like autonomous, like, you know, you brought up autonomous, uh, like last mile delivery, for example, right? Oh, sorry, there's one, there's one other thing that happened, uh, China. <laughs> you know, they, have, they obviously kind of went through their COVID cycle first, but then people got to sort of see a sneak peek of, of them regrouping and auto sales really bounced back. But also if you're seeing some of the news reports on autonomy in China, um, it's no surprise because it's very top-down authoritarian and they can move faster than most other countries can who have much more complicated regulatory you know environments but i think what 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 that effect will happen is that will then shake up you know everybody else and sort of make sure uh like you know keep people chomping at the bit to to catch up and and not have sort of china dominate that space um so that's a little bit of how um we've seen things transpire and sort of our view of where we are in this in this s curve <laughs> What are some of the, the largest barriers to getting autonomous technologies rolled out more broadly? What's, what's it going to take for us here in the U.S. and in other countries to, to catch up and to be able to kind of get that deployed? One of the challenges the U.S. has is it's very like federated, right? Because you have like 50 states that can all have their own laws. So that's been a big push from the AV industry over the past few years. And the federal government recognizes that like all the private companies need to know what the rules of the game are and ideally in a uniform way so they, they don't have to have a different playbook for Arizona versus California versus Oregon versus Washington. You know, like that, that would be a nightmare. So that's one. I mean, especially in like urban, the urban robo taxi phase, there's been a, a lot of interesting developments for sure, like drivers being actually finally pulled out of the vehicle, commercial 
uh, services being deployed, you know, people actually paying for this and, and showing that they're having a really good experience. That's awesome. You know, there's still work to do to make that scalable, you know, um, fully economic within just one city, let alone, you know, going to many. And by the way, I think uh, there are certain technological governors on that, including mapping. <laughs> you know, we, we know for a fact that, you know, all these companies, at least today, uh, you know, as I said, that might change over time when the map is used, being used a little bit differently. But today, that map is almost like virtual railroad tracks, right? Like they won't, unless unless you have a really high quality map in the routes that you're driving in a given city, you can't deploy. It's like, you know, the car may as well not have wheels on it. And all that takes resources. It takes a robust uh, supplier ecosystem, you know, and you're dealing with the real world. You're dealing with atoms. It's not just like a bunch of software that you, you build it and then, you know, you let people in and then it's just sort of exponential from there, right? Those are a few. I, I think, of course, there's also consumer acceptance. It's also interesting to see that kind of the media portrays this sort of technology or kind of any frontier technology in a bit of a negative light. I think it's both though. You know, I think, look, I think what the media, you know, I actually come from a background in digital media and actually in, in, in the news world itself. I, you know, I used to work at ABC News years ago. Yep. First off, I have a respect and appreciation for a, a good functioning, uh, you know, press and media. At the same time, like, right, you, you just, you see it over and over with, with tech where the media is almost too lovey-dovey oftentimes in the upward part of the hype cycle and then too negative on the trough part, right? It's it's just sort of very much built, the you know, the business model and just the nature of it is so built for sort of over-emphasizing it on both the positive and negative side. And it's usually more boring than both of those. It's usually somewhere in between, the truth is, you know? Uh, so the nice thing about this industry is, I think in terms of the people in the industry working on the problems, um, sure, there are some tourists, but you know, I think uh, I actually been really impressed by you know, all the folks we deal with because you know, generally they, they really like to keep their heads down and keep chipping away. You know, leaves us hopeful. It's like cool. No, this problem is being worked on by people who who genuinely genuinely care and are in it for the long run. You wrote this blog post on the revolution, like the next revolution being in in autonomous technology. What excites you the most about this space, and then what will this begin to enable for people? that they're probably not thinking about. I would say still like the overall concepts that I was writing about still apply. I'm sure I'd change some things in there, but still apply because one of the things that has always gotten me so excited about this, you know, my kind of entree into next generation transportation was actually goes back to the nineties when I was an undergrad and um, is in a kind of an engineering program, but which multidisciplinary and we were working with various autonomous mobility concepts and um, a bunch of other things. So I, I've been, I've been thought it was cool for a long time. You know, it was more recently than that, probably a little bit before I wrote that blog post back in whatever it was, 2014, that it dawned on me just how impactful automating mobility would be. And I think that for two reasons, one is I was coming off my, so my previous startup was, you know, in the sort of web 2.0 social web, you know, kind of big hype cycle there and got very familiar with the internet and how the digital, you know, the kind of the network of our digital lives works, right? The internet. And I saw parallels that the real world were starting to be sort of like more and more digitized and that sort of you know, there's this, there's this expression that Mark Andreessen uh, coined about software is eating the world. Well, it's it also seemed like software and data was eating the real world, the built world as well, you know, around that time in terms of like, 
IOT sensors, you know, being in everything and like, and what was going on, by the way, also in mapping technology. So, you know, it got me thinking like, arguably the biggest revolution of the internet was search, right? And developing a crawler and an index for all the nodes that are in the network, you know, the digital network of the world, the internet. And it seemed like that was inevitable, like that the real world, you know, needed that as well. And if you really think about roads are very much kind of like the, you know, the edges in, in that connect up the nodes of the real world, you know, um, yet, like we still had pretty poor knowledge of roads and hadn't really digitized them very well. Sure, we had Google Maps, et cetera. But as I said before, pretty limited in terms of what information you know about those roads and how and certainly how frequently they're updated. So, so from, from a super abstract point of view of like taking my digital experience and then thinking about how, you know, we're seeing some mega trends of applying that to the real world. That was very intellectually interesting. And then also, you know, just, just realizing that the second order effects of when you can really automate moving things around in the real world and like all the waste, just the economic waste of the way things are moved today. Like if you can sort of almost like, again, going using the digital analogy, like if you can like kind of packetize, you know, and load balance the world, a little, the real world a bit in terms of how things are moving around, that could just have a, a profound effect on so many other things besides the trans, transportation itself, you know, land use and, um, you know, productivity. And, you know, I listed a whole bunch of other things. I actually think those particular things though are probably nearest and dearest in terms of, you know, like what I think, if you just think about it abstractly, time and space, right? Time and space are very poorly allocated right now in terms of what we use land for in, in the real world. Like, like I'll give you a hint, parking. <laughs> like there's way too much parking real estate in the world, okay? Um, and yeah, so that's one example uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, the XY, uh, XYZ plane. And then on the time side, uh, you know, in that post I mentioned, you know, one, one other thing I remember reading, um, you know, probably a little, but yeah, probably like in, in around that time, when I wrote it was I, I'd seen there was this like major longitudinal study that someone it might have been Google or might have been someone else uh, had done. Um, I know it wasn't Google, it was someone else it had done about happiness. It was like, I think, considered the most robust um, kind of peer reviewed academics uh, study on what drives happiness and like and, and being and showing causality. And I remember there was like, at least in the, the summary of it, they were like, you know what? There was only two things that really showed any causality. <laughs> and one of them was, I think it was like divorce rate, which is not surprising, you know? But the other one was they showed a very strong, not just correlation, but I think uh, causation with commutes and, and commute times. And it dawned on me that that, yeah, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. Like there's a lot of anxiety and stress and drudgery associated with people just figuring out how the hell to like, get around, get to work and back, eat, whether that's driving yourself or whether that's taking a bus or a train and then transferring to something else, whatever, you know, it, it just, it just sort of causes a lot of mental overhead, you know? And I think, I think that's the, you know, and again, like what's been so interesting about this last year is like, Hey, what if you don't have to do that every day? Right. Like I, I have a crazy travel schedule, both commuting, you know, almost a, like an hour, 20 hour and a half commute um, uh, into our office in Brooklyn. And then, uh, and also travel all around the world a lot. You know, the automotive industry is, is all around the world, right? And then I've just realized how needle moving it's been to not have to do that. But even once we do go back and do more in person, 
you know, being able to have either much more pleasurable experience or not having to, for, for example, you know, actually drive yourself and being able to use that time for something else, whether that's taking a nap or emails or whatever. Like, um, I, I just think that's very, very highly impactful. And it's hard to quantify that sometimes for, uh, you know, like, let's say a given market size or something like real estate. But I think it, it kind of, what I like about it is it's like, it's sort of across the board, you know, it's just like all of society um, impactful. So, yeah. I'd love to kind of a few more kind of examples from you on, because you mentioned like insurance, civic planning, construction, healthcare, like, can you dive into like concretely things that you think are going to change as a result of the upcoming revolution? I'm going to leave out like, you know, the obvious like automotive and transportation, but yeah. So like, I think uh, real estate construction, I kind of already hinted at it. You know, there, I think that built environment industry is already rethinking a lot about I mean, by the way, it's not just AV, it's not just autonomy, but even things like uh, EVs, right? Like uh, everyone, all developers are rethinking how they think about, you know, parking, charging infrastructure, modularity, so that you don't have to waste a ton of space on on permanent parking. You can kind of reconfigure that for a different use if you like to. Same thing with city planning and, you know, the use of lanes, curbs, um, even just full neighborhoods, you know, um, either first off, just removing cars wholesale or reserving certain lanes only for high occupancy or a high autonomy type uh, modalities there. That's all happening. I think insurance, huge one. (laughs) They're all trying to figure out how the heck to underwrite this. Um, although they're also, I think, ex- both excited and anxious about it because on one hand, they don't know how to, uh, you know, they, they, their actual actuarial models <laughs> don't really incorporate this yet. But on the other hand, they also think that they can. Um, they, I think they see a lot of opportunity in, you know, in kind of managing risk better um, with uh, autonomy that can really, um, you know, make a dent in safety, right. In terms of like, um, just, just given what we know about human fault for, you know, over a million deaths every year around the world, um, with cars. So that's another one, uh, you know, healthcare is obviously related though. It's not just a million deaths, but it's also, you know, many millions of injuries and exactly. And, and by the way, that also has insurance implications on the healthcare side, you know, media and entertainment, as I mentioned, like on one hand, like, it's very exciting to get a lot of time back in a given week or month on, you know, in your commute to be able to do other things. And of course, whenever you get time back, the media industry wants that time and attention. (laughs) So they're all trying to figure out how to, you know, to get in front of you and monetize it. And yeah, those are just a few, but maybe we could go on. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. There's like clearly a lot of connected pieces to this that we're not really expecting right now, but as we see the technology roll out and we, it's just going to have ripple effects throughout the industry and throughout kind of our day-to-day lives. Where do you see opportunities for, for other entrepreneurs to kind of get involved and go build in, in like this changing landscape? I think there's some really techie stuff that, you know, people smarter than me tell me are still gaps in the, uh, so I'm talking right now about autonomous driving technical stack. And this includes for personally owned vehicles. So, you know, I think when we talk about autonomy, there's two pretty distinct types. I think in this in this podcast, we've been mostly talking about you know, what's called level four autonomy, where it's you know it's really more like that robo taxi model where you don't even own the car, there is no driver, this there may not even be a steering wheel, and it's just you know basically like an autonomous Uber, right? But there's also a parallel path going on in uh, what a lot of people refer to as like level two autonomy or level two plus, 
and that is more really driver assist. You know, it's, it's still the driver still has to be in the loop, but it, it's like adaptive cruise control on steroids. You know, it's, the car is just doing a lot more for you. You still have to pay attention. And if you don't, you'll get beeped at, but you know, it can, it can not only stay in the lane to change lanes and, you know, do some more sophisticated things. And so that's, you know, you're, you're certainly Tesla autopilot was really first out of the gate with that. Um, but you know, all the other car makers have, uh, have been catching up there. And as they get more and more, you know, as they sort of basically build their cars more as like a computer on wheels, which is really what Tesla did from the get go. Cause they were able to do that. Right. Whereas all the other car companies had all this legacy, you know, way of doing things. And so they had to do it much more patchwork, but you're seeing those traditional auto companies realize that, no, we really have to rethink this and have a new sort of software, you know, uh, more software centric platform where it is more like a computer on wheels. You know, VW is a good example. They created this thing they call car.software. You know, it's, it's like, it sounds much more like a Silicon Valley organization than a, you know, auto uh, based organization. So, and so I mentioned that because what that that's all well and good, but that what that means is that's still a massive change for those traditional auto companies. And um, those folks tell me there's a lot of gaps in terms of like getting them to be able to behave more like, you know, let, let's call it more like the Silicon Valley, um, you know, software centric computer on wheels style. And, you know, that, that includes things like uh, semiconductors that are really more purpose built for our you know, uh, computing stacks like that, in, in, you know, within automotive or um, middleware, you know, that was really more purpose built for, again, that use case or uh, better ways to approach, um, you know, data management, uh, especially edge versus cloud. You know, again, it's just like, you know, uh, companies like Tesla may have already been able to plan for all that, but, you know, these hundred year old auto companies weren't able to. And so they're now, really trying to fill those gaps. So I, that's one area where I think if you're starting a company now, I would do a bunch of research, talk to, talk to these people. You know, the, the good thing is uh, I think there's a lot of humility in, in you know, I, I think there's a, there's on one hand, there's actually a lot of like, you know, uh, self-respect, which is deserving from these auto companies that, Hey, look, like we're still like the best at bending metal and actually shipping these cars at scale, manufacturing at high quality and safety and scale. On the other hand, there's humility that, yes, this is a new way of thinking, a new paradigm for them, and that they don't have all the answers. So they're very interested in, in keeping up with really sharp young people or startups or entrepreneurs and, and, and telling them what their problems are. Is anyone really going to be able to beat Tesla? Like, is there patchworking stuff in to try and make, make it work? retroactively versus Tesla, you know, building that from the ground up? Like short answer is yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if the growth prospects match Tesla stock price right now or not. I think Tesla is a very complicated story in our industry. On one hand, the entire industry should be absolutely thankful of what they've catalyzed on both the EV side and on the AV side. You know, they they woke things up across the board and it's just absolutely undeniable that we wouldn't be where we are if they hadn't scared the heck out of the industry to catch up on, on those important things. On the other hand, you know, they do have a fairly, a very different approach that a lot of people are uncomfortable with and or um, pessimistic about. And I'm in some ways partially one of those. Uh, I say partially because I think some of those things that they're doing are actually very forward thinking and they need to be leading in a way that is not conformist to convention, particularly, by the way, on the EV side. Um, on the AV side, I share some of the discomfort 
because I think one of the keys with autonomous mobility, uh, you know, particularly cars on public roads, is they are on public roads. They're not a contained technology like a rocket. You know that yes, if something happens, most likely it's going to go into the ocean or something like that, right?、Um, same th- or with you know a tunnel or with、uh, neuralace or something. You know, like they're much more contained in nature, whereas robo cars are not. You know, they are in immersed with. The public domain, with many other stakeholders who care, and even if you can make all these claims about the technology, there's a lot of these sort of you know these externalities that really matter for from government sake, society sake, insurance, regulators. All these other things really, really matter. I guess what I'm getting at is like a lot of the redundancies and processes that. The more traditional companies, well, the, the traditional auto companies are taking, but also the competitors in the robo taxi space are taking. I think have a much higher likelihood of 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 sort of meeting all those other stakeholder requirements for you know societal acceptance, again insurance, etc.,、um, because you know you're dealing with things that are just hardwired into people. Like they want to know. Like again, aviation is a really good example, or elevators too. You know, even if you can say, "Hey, look at our data; it's this much better than、uh, than human drivers today."、Um, that that doesn't that may not matter, right? It, if like、um, you're still showing that the machine is at fault for、uh, you know a death、um, that was caused by machine decision, you know, th- there's just a sort of societal psychology there. And I think、um, so. It's a long-winded way of saying that. For one reason, in autonomy, I know I don't think、uh, Tesla, or quite frankly, anyone can run the table. But I also think you have seen、um, a kind of a, a winnowing a bit、uh, in the past couple of years on, you know, let's call it half a dozen or so, maybe a little bit more big, maybe half a dozen to a dozen big players、uh, in the Western world, and then another、uh, half a dozen、uh, in China. Who are kind of showing,、um, you know, that they have a like very big ambitions and, and a big、um, an ability to get major market share. Yeah, yeah. Some kids, and I'm curious for you when you think about the future, what sort of like what's your vision for the world you want your kids to grow up in? It's a good one because, like, you know, first off, like my kids are. At that age, like honestly, when they start to become, you know, old enough to to get a license and old enough to then, you know, be adults and leave the nest, so to speak, that timing is likely to time quite <laughs> well with a lot of like these, you know, Ray Kurzweil's prediction on the singularity, for example, and you know, whatever that was, twenty twenty nine, and like a lot of the deployment、uh, plans that we see in the autonomous space, you know,、um, again in the next ten years. So it actually it is very personal. I do think about like, oh, what could my daughter expect, you know? And I just think that it's it kind of goes back to that point where I would love to sort of see this really great equilibrium of human machine working in in a harmonious way. That sounds a very kumbaya, but I think that's sort of always been a dream. I think of people who have you know been in kind of like into robotics or AI or whatever. And quite frankly, I think we're going through growing pains there because there is hype, and then there's also a lot of fear about that, right? And my hope is that by the time my kids are of age, like we will have sort of gone through that, you know, <laughs> that crazy、uh, ebb and flow of like too much hype, too much fear, too much give, too much take, and we kind of get to this this equilibrium where 
machines are actually really enhancing humans for the right reasons. And it's not on one extreme or the other. That's how we also think about maps, by the way. We think maps can play a real role in that for um, both human and machine mobility. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Where can people find you and, and how can they support and kind of are there any, what, what are y'all's needs? I assume you're, you're hiring always. Yeah, yeah. So carmera.com, carmera.com slash join. Uh, if you're interested in, in coming uh, to join with us, where, you know, we have sort of traditional full-time roles, uh, technical roles that we hire for. But actually, we recently also just, what is it, a week ago or two weeks ago, launched something we call Project Ships, which are targeted at um, younger people who kind of want to, especially people who may not always have easy opportunities to get their foot in the door at, um, you know, companies like doing interesting uh, you know, work in technology and it's just like six weeks paid projects. You know, we kind of, we call them project ships because it's, it has similarities to like traditional internships, but they're a lot less friction because oftentimes they're built for people maybe younger and maybe don't have much experience, but maybe they have, you know, time, you know, on the weekends, even if they're in school to work on something like this. Right. Um, so that's also, I think uh, if that's interesting for your audience, you can check that out there. And then, yeah, and then also, you know, Twitter at Carmera, C-A-R-M-E-R-A. Um, that's usually where we try to keep folks up to date. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Love talking about the, the future of Autonomous with you. And yeah, excited to kind of stay in the loop on, on everything that progresses. Likewise. Thanks, Cameron. It's a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics, or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at Cam Weesey, and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.